Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, how does Ireland end up with the politicians it does? Um, now, I, when we wrote that question, it didn't mean to be as sarky as it sounds, but it kind of does end up being like, how did we end up here, guys? Jeez. Um, but what we were talking about when we were brainstorming what to do on this episode was, we're going to the polls on the 8th of February, um, we have decisions to make, we have a choice, but how did we end up with the choices that we do? Like, what has got us there? Has it, what has it been influenced by? Is it civil war politics? Is it the fact that we have PRSTV? Um, what's more important to Irish people? Is it parish pump politics? Is it who their leader is going to be? Is it um, the party that they are most in love with? Um, so to figure all that out, we tried to get a panel together, and I think we did incredibly well with the people we have. Um, Adrian Kavanagh, who is election guru, but also geography lecturer at uh, Maynooth University. Um, Lise Hand, who you have seen writing for the journal over the last uh, three weeks, uh, journalist at large and broadcaster. You've probably heard her on every radio show over the last three weeks. Um, she doesn't sleep at the moment. Um, up at six for BBC and Sky News, into Morning Ireland, and uh, writing for the journal and Gary Murphy, DCU Professor of Politics and History Extraordinaire as well. So I told Gary earlier I'd be asking him really hard questions and he, and he panicked. <laughs> um, but the first question I'm gonna ask, and any of you can take this, because it's probably where um, we want to start, is what is PRSTV and why does Ireland have it? PRSTV is an unusual electoral system. Uh, it's one of the proportional electoral systems that's used across the world, but for national elections, as far as I know, and Gary's going to correct me on this, only Ireland and Malta use it for general elections. I know other countries, it's used in the north, I know for assembly elections, sometimes probably local elections as well. It's one of the proportional systems. Uh, why it's used in Ireland, uh, I think it dates back to the 1910s, uh, when Ireland was about to gain independence, when they thought the free state was going to be created. The idea was you would have a proportional electoral system that would allow the, uh, the religious minorities in Ireland a chance to get representation in the Dáil. Now, unlike the list system, which is the main one used in continental Europe, uh, again, Gary probably knows more about this and he's going to correct me, but my remembrance of this is that the big talk in the academic literature in the UK at the time was all about this single transferable vote system. So it's, it's like the county system, it's one and our roads. It's another thing we've inherited from our British colonial past. But it's become as Irish as sliced bread. Most Irish people love PRSTV now. Uh, we've had two chances, two referendums to try and abolish it and replace it. And the first one in 1958, I think, failed slightly. The second one in 1968 failed by a big margin and often tried to get rid of it since. Yeah, Gary, because one of the things that came up in the British election was how First Past the Post was failing the British system. Is PRSTV so much better? And if we did inherit it off the, the Brits, why is it so much better? Well, it's better because it's proportional. Uh, so the idea, basically, if you get 20% of the vote, you should get 20% of the seats. That's it at its simplest. Um, the, the, the revolutionary generation were keen on PR uh, and STV, as Adrian said, as a kind of a, an offshoot of it. Uh, precisely, in many ways, because it was different to first past the post, uh, which is a very majoritarian system. You know, the Tories won... 
56% of the seats on 40 odd percent of the vote just uh, just back in December. Um, and uh, it's easy to use for the voter, which I think is, is a really important point. You're presented with your ballot paper, you have the names, now we have the parties, that, that's a, only a development actually since the 1960s where they literally put down, you know, uh, Kavanaugh, you know, leash party. Yes. Um, and then a picture is, is even a more recent uh, phenomenon, which is a very good idea. And the idea was, you know, to give the voters more information. It's very easy to use. You, you know, take one, two, three, four, five. There is some dispute about whether you should go all the way down the, the ballot or not. My oh, view on that. That's a question for later. Yeah, <laughs> and I have very strong views on that. Um, so... Um, yeah, so and STV plus one as as we use it is uh, is easy for the voter to uh, uh, to understand when they're filling it out. It's more complicated when it comes to, to counts. Sean Lamas famously said in, in 1959 when Fianna Fáil tried to abolish it uh, that no no reasonable voter could understand where their third preference uh, went. Uh, that's true, I think, to a, but only to a, to a certain extent. Um, Is so it yeah. a stupid question to ask why Fianna Fáil wanted to get rid of it? Well, their opponents would have said it would have given perpetual Fianna Fáil rule. Yeah. Uh, and remember Fianna Fáil up to... Uh, the, the great crash of uh, 2011. Uh, they got 40%, over 40% in every single uh, general election from 1932 uh, to 1992, with the exception of 92 and 97, where Albert Reynolds and then Bertie got 39 point, I think six and eight or something. Uh, and it's only since the crash where you have the collapse. So the idea of the opponents were, this would be a terrible idea, uh, we never read that Fianna Fáil forever. Uh, Fianna Fáilers at the time, including someone like Charles Hockey, who was their director of elections, uh, suggested that, no, this wasn't the case, the Irish voter was much more uh, sophisticated, but not so sophisticated that he couldn't use PRSTV, uh, if you know what I mean, and they just wanted a, a, a one or an X. Just on a sort of wider level, um, it sort of suits the Irish psyche as well, because you know, we're a race that loves a grudge and you can actually vote to keep somebody out as well or put somebody out as well as bring somebody in. And, you know, there's, you know, you get it. There's a great buzz from voting. You know, you get that sort of little glow when you come out of the polling booth. But it's an extra glow, kind of the extra ready break glow around you if you've actually done something really vengeful and you've kind of gone, well, you don't like that person. And, you know, and then it's sort of the great conundrum and I'm sure the, 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 the two distinguished gentlemen on either side of me will go into this in greater detail. But, you know, whether you do go the whole way down the ballot or whether you just leave out your, your, the candidate you actually don't want completely. And there is the whole notion of sort of following your vote through as well, you know. So it kind of creates this great drama. And we do love drama. And we talk, obviously, about the drama of the count. But, you know, there's something quite flat about going in, you know, maybe pressing a lever or just, you know, knowing it's first past the post. You don't kind of feel you have skin in the game because if you're if you really like somebody but they're they're a small they're an independent or a small party candidate, you know that in your if it's first past the post, they're not going to get in. Whereas, you know, with our system, with various transfers and so on, and maybe with with voting pacts, you know, the little guy sometimes does actually have a chance. So that, I think it's actually important from that point of view as well, like getting people involved. Why don't more countries use it? Uh, because it leads to fragmentation. Um, Ireland was very unusual because of the, 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 the weird uh, nature of Fianna Fáil, and, and apologies to any Fianna Fáilers here. Uh, it, it was an amazing party in many ways. It drew its support from all classes and, and uh, creeds, notwithstanding Michal Martin's attempts over the last few days to paint it as the party of the working classes only. Uh, an odd thing to say, I thought. Um, but, um, yeah, it, it, it leads to fragmentation. So no one here thinks that 
uh, coalition governing will be easy to form after the election, at least I think not, uh, because the three main parties are bunched in the 20s and proportionally that will give you about uh, 40 seats. Uh, Adrian might explain the list system and, and how all that works, but uh, PR is not, a lot of people don't like PR for that reason, I think. Yeah, uh, I think the main reason why people, countries like the USA, UK, that have first passed the post, uh, don't change the PRSTV is turkeys don't vote for Christmas. So really, who makes the decision is usually the parties who are in charge. And if you're the Conservatives and Labour, you know, okay, maybe the Conservatives are in power now, but if you're Labour, you're going to say, actually, we're happy enough to keep first past the post because probably in another five, ten years' time, we'll get our turn again and we'll have all the power maybe for 10, 15 years. So I think that's part of the reason. Uh, I, do, I like PRS TV. I think it gives our voters a lot more choice. Now, in some ways, it's not as proportional as the list system. List, system, list systems are usually designed to almost guarantee almost exact proportionality. In Ireland, and I'm sure Gary will correct me on this, but generally in Ireland, we tend to find that our system is proportional, but it's not out and out 100% proportional. So usually, the bigger parties, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, will get a bit of a seat bounce. Uh, I think in uh, the, probably the, the most extreme example of this in recent elections, 2011, Fine Gael got 36% of the vote, but it got 46% of the seats. Because if you're the bigger party, your candidates are going to be up at the top of the ranking. So you're going to be getting transfers as the counts go on, and you're not going to be a party with loads of candidates who get eliminated and provide those transfers. In 2016, Fine Gael got 25% of the vote, but they actually got 31% of the seats, and again, they got a bounce. Now, that was an interesting one because that was partly Fine Gael getting lucky because of how bad Labour did, and all these lost <coughs> Labour seats got turned into Labour transfers to keep a certain number of Fine Gael people in the doll. There are all those sweet, sweet facts I was talking about at the start. Um, I think this is probably a good time then to move on to the Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, big party. It, how much of it, Gary, this is, these are the hard questions I said I was going to ask you. The RSE, I think, debacle at the, at the start of this year showed that a lot of that hasn't completely died away, that the idea that some people in Ireland pick a side um, and they have stuck to it and that's what their voting patterns were. Can you just bring us back and give us a rundown of how we ended up with that, that people just picked a side and voted that way? Uh, of course, as you remember, Sinead, I was very sceptical about this RIC uh, issue until you showed me this vast amount of engagement the journal had uh, with people uh, on your story, um, which kind of goes to show what I know. Um, but I do know a good a bit about how Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael emerged. As most people would have some idea, it comes out of the, the revolutionary generation, uh, it comes out of the, 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 the split uh, over the, the Anglo-Irish Treaty, uh, 64, 57 in the Dáil, 43 in the Cabinet. Um, and you had the famous phrase of Labour must wait um, during the 1918 election, where it was a great Sinn Féin breakthrough, uh, which we discussed uh, last Just year. Just for the beginners out there, Fianna Fáil were which side, Fianna Gael were which side, if you're bringing it to the future and simplifying it? Yeah, well, Fianna Fáil, um, Party of Eamon de Valera, were, were, were anti-treatyites. Uh, Fine Gael were originally coming to Gael. Uh, they were the pro-treaty uh, side led by uh, W.T. Cosgrave, who became first minister and later his son Liam Cosgrave became uh, prime minister uh, and Taoiseach, or sorry, Taoiseach. Um, and um, there was this big split after the, uh, 
uh, the Anglo-Irish Treaty, there was a civil war, uh, there was a new constitution written, because when you have a new state, a new state tends to write a new constitution, there was a dispute uh, about that. Um, Fianna Fáil originally said they were, they were founded in, um, in La Scala Theatre in 1926. Uh, Eamon de Valera said he wouldn't enter a parliament, he wouldn't take the oath uh, there was a constitutional note to the king. Uh, he eventually turned on that and said it was an empty formula. And Fianna Fáil won a majority in 1932, the first of the, the so-called Red Scares uh, in Ireland. Um, so there, there's, there's a, what sometimes what we call a cleavage, and the cleavage in Ireland is, is on, was, was on the national question. Cleavages in places like Germany were on the social democratic, Christian democratic uh, debate, or, or what you might call conservatism versus socialism. Um, in Ireland, we had it on the on the national uh, question. And so when people talk about civil war politics and you know sort of quoting the black and tans and whatnot, uh, that dates to, um, to to the 1920s and our revolutionary generation. Uh, you explain it, I hope. It, yeah, absolutely. A, what's really interesting is we often, and I'm sure Gary again will correct me on this, we often talk about Ireland. Irish politics, at least up until the last decade, has been largely without a class base. Now, what was interesting about Irish politics in the 30s was there was a class base to Irish politics, but it was rural class. It was Fianna Fáil, small farmers, Fine Gael, large farmers, and Labour, funnily enough, you might imagine Labour would have got most of their support from the urban work, working class. Actually, Fianna Fáil, because in 1932, as Gary was talking there, Fianna Fáil were the Sinn Féin of 1932. They were the party with the whiff of cordite. So from 1932 up until the crash, really, Fianna Fáil became the party of the urban working class. Whether they are now, as Michal Martin suggests, I don't think so. But where did Labour get their most consistent vote? In the 30s, it was the agricultural labours, the farm labours, which is why if you look at the map of Labour support, even up to today, you can still see this concentration in the south of Ireland and the east of Ireland, where you had the most tillage farming, the most tillage farming, and as a result, the most farm labourers. How much of that is still at play if you're looking at general election 2020, Lise? Well, I think um, what we're sort of seeing emerging now um, is probably has its roots in the formation of the confidence and supply agreement in the last, uh, after the last general election, when an inconclusive uh, result ended up with this unusual arrangement because for the first time it not, didn't actually unite them in coalition but it, it allied the two big great big beasts of Irish of Irish politics together Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil with Fianna Fáil prom, pro, uh, propping up Fine Gael um, and I think that began to sort of change people's perception of how they operated because you know, Fianna Fáil desperately tried to kind of do this kind of, you know, Schrodinger's cat kind of thing where they were simultaneously on the opposition benches and in government. And, you know, they, you know, because they feared leaving Sinn Féin, giving them a clear run as the party of opposition. So they tried to actually keep a leg in each camp, but it clearly didn't work. Um, and I think it began to rewire people's brains. And instead of thinking in the binary terms of you're either Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael, like in the old days, I used to work in Indo, you know, and you'd be, you, you're, you took the independent or you took the, or you took the press, you know, there was that binary choice. Um, I think people started to see, you know, Fianna, like Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael as cut from the same cloth. And um, this led to Sinn Féin being regarded as the party of opposition now they chose to be the party of opposition. They chose. They opted out of, the, of, of government formation talks last time. So 
And I think that this is what's been very interesting about this election is that uh, Mary Lou MacDonald has been assiduous in her drive to mention f like the two parties in the same breath. I mean, if you look back at any interview she's done, she will say, you know, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil in the same breath. Ba basically painting them as the one and uh, creating this impression that, you know, they are the alternative government because they have been the party of opposition. So I think we've seen a sort of a realignment in people's heads. Now, it's more complicated and there many, are many more reasons. But I think that the fundamental root of, of the, what we're seeing now probably did start then. Was it predictable that we'd eventually get to the point that people aren't that taking the newspapers or, you know, people's marriages that my mom and dad talk about being a Fianna Fáil house, marrying into a Fianna Gael house, and it was a big topic of conversation. Was it predictable that that would eventually end just because time? Or is it, was that climb, was it the uh, confidence and supply agreement that did it? Um, there's probably a sense of inevitability about it, um, but sometimes I think we... We, we read too much into it, and I'll explain that. So in 2007, uh, Bertie O'Hearn saved Brian Cohen, they saved Fianna Fáil, who looked as if they were heading for opposition, in the last week uh, wrestled the levers of power for Fremenda Kenny and Fianna Gael on the grounds that they could be trusted with the economy. And they got 41.8% uh, of the vote or something. It's a broad traditional Fianna Fáil vote. And if you track the polling, um, which sort of nerds like me do, uh, from... The summer of 07 to the bank guarantee scheme, Fianna Fáil are in the high 30s. Not unusual, you know, in, in government. And then after the bank guarantee scheme and the crash, it just collapses. Um, and I think the tsunami of the economic crash uh, has just transformed our parties. And so it was, it was like this big, huge seismic event. Uh, it changed the whole nature of Irish politics rather suddenly. Uh, and then, as people would know, that government just imploded. Uh, the Fianna Fáil uh, government, Brian Cohen and Brian Lennon, the late Brian Lennon, who I was actually quite friendly with, he launched one of my books. Um, so, you know, and of course, sadly, no deceased, but they were at odds uh, for the whole last year of that uh, of that um, government. And, and Lennon has been painted as the sort of shining knight. It was a very interesting book by Danny McConnell and John Lee, Head at the Gates, which Cohen spoke for the, for the first time about how he was taking decisions as a teacher. But it, it was that huge seismic event, I think, has changed the nature of Irish politics. And, and we're still living with it. I, I, I think we're, it, 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 as Lisa said, it hasn't uh, materialised or it hasn't stabilised, I should say, uh, just yet. So I think it's what's happening in this election, why we're seeing such variation in the polls. And I think elections to come are going to be even more fluid. If we're not as attached to parties as we once were, or if we never were attached to parties, um, one of the things that has been really prevalent is how important the leaders are of each party nowadays. Um, so if we're not attached to a party, are we kind of at in danger, or maybe it's an okay thing that the cult of the leader or the cult of personality that we've seen in the UK and the US is going to come here? Uh, please, maybe that's one for you. Well, you know, when you look back, I suppose the, the first great personality clashes that we had would have been um, Garrett Fitzgerald versus Charlie Hawhey. I mean, it was, they were two enormous figures uh, in Irish politics and they butted against each other time and again. I mean, particularly around that sort of mad uh, 18 months in, in 1981, 82, when there was three general elections, God help us. Um, you know, and there were... 
<laughs> yeah, I know, it's like, it was a great time to be alive if you were a total nerd. <laughs> and uh, so three general elections and, you know, all the turbulence. That was the time of the famous Gubu uh, incident and all that, you know, and I mean, it, it was just a crazy time. But the two men, you know, were pitted against each other. It was actually the February 82 election was the first televised debate between the two leaders, party leaders. And it was it was a huge event. I mean, the, I think even images of were, were beamed in, over to America for news bulletins and so on. You know, it was kind of pitched as the sort of the biggest thing since, you know, Richard Nixon and Jack Kennedy, which is quite hilarious to think about it. But, um, it, uh, you know, it, and the, you know, and it was seen as a crucial debate. I mean, I was looking back at some headlines from that, you know, and it was from that debate and the newspaper headlines were like, this debate could change everything, you know, key debate. I'm thinking, God, we read that. I read that only yesterday about the debate last, you know, the primetime debate. Um, and the two men, you know, represented very different figures. Uh, there was a genuine animus between them. Now, it, it, it mellowed over the years. And actually, when Charlie Hoy was, was dying, uh, Gareth Fitzgerald actually went out to visit him. So, you know, they, they did. But that was sort of the first time that you had the sort of the two personalities leading the charge. And I think that opened the door to a greater focus on the leader, not just on the policies or not just on the civil war politics. You know, again, you had someone like Bertie O'Hearn who came along and he was seen as this young, dynamic guy who sort of took the, you know, the, the slightly moribund uh, fall by the scruff of the neck. And, you know, he was seen as this guy who was sort of beetled around, you know, high energy on the campaign trail and so on. And, you know, then we had, you know, Enda Kenny was painted as the sort of the safe pair of hands, the kind of the clean cut guy after all the, the mud was flying around from the Mahan Tribunal. And, you know, and now, of course, we have this brings us right up to now uh, where you have, you know, Leo Varadkar pitted against kind of an old school Michal Martin, who's a very canny operator. And now you have um, Mary Lou MacDonald, who is, you know, intriguing people simply because you know, you had Jerry Adams, who was top of, of Sinn Féin for 34 years, which is like an insane amount of time. Um, so, you know, when he stepped down and she stepped in, she was a completely different uh, animal than, than, you know, that people were used to associating with Sinn Féin. She was sort of middle, nice middle class girl who went to convent education, you know, got with the convent education. She kind of was, a, you know, sort of, you know, feisty and, you know, was very different. Um, and we've seen over, uh, you know, over the last decade or so or a couple of decades that you know things like debates and there's enough of focus on the personalities of, of the of, of our leaders so it's not just policy you can have the best policy in the world but if you're regarded as shady or dodgy you know that's that really does mark against you adrian do people vote because of the leader of the party or the candidate that's in front of them on the ballot paper I think uh, Sinead research generally tends to suggest in Ireland at least up until recent elections people are more likely to vote for the candidate. Uh, I think it's, isn't it, Gary, 60% recent polls suggest that 60% of people vote for the candidate. And usually, Ireland being Ireland, and I've got my local papers here, usually you vote for the candidate who's local for you because a lot of times people are voting for someone who's going to get something done for the constituency. And who can you trust most? Someone from your area. You don't trust someone from 20 miles down the road Sure, they don't know feckin' anything about you or your area. So it does lead to a certain style of local voting. We call it sometimes in electoral geography a friends and neighbours effect, where if you're a candidate, whether you're Enda Kenny, Michal Martin or Leo Varadkar, you're always going to find, irrespective of who you are or if you're just some poor 
misfortunate independent who's going to get 100 votes, you're going to get <laughs> most of your votes from your local area because that's, that's, they're your people. They're the people who will vote for you because they expect you to do something for the area. But you also know everything about that area. So you can, you can play the local information. You can use the local information flows uh, to try and bolster that vote as well. So if you know something's going down the line from your friends in the council, you'll have a letter or an email, well, let's face it, a letter sent out to the local constituent saying, I'm delighted to know that that big pothole out of Bally Bally is about to be filled, thanks to my great efforts. So there's a lot of that. Name recognition uh, on the ballot is a, is a huge issue yes. uh, all across, whether it's rural Ireland or, or urban Ireland. Um, so party attachment is, is important, certainly, uh, but name recognition even more so is the, uh, is the, is the, is the big issue, I think. Uh, you can have candidates who... I'll give you an example of Michal Martin. He first ran in 1987. Uh, kind of a, he was very young at the time, I think about 27. Um, and they, they ran him in, in, in an attempt to build up his name recognition, and it worked. Uh, two years later, 1989, uh, he won a seat... Uh, he was the poll the most uh, votes of the Fianna Fáil candidates, where he is polled the least uh, just two years earlier. Uh, and now we see uh, where he is. Uh, there are a few other things I think are important. One is that uh, party attachment has collapsed. Those who describe themselves as, as Fianna Fáil, I'm Fianna Fáil, uh, like a Fianna Fáil host, as you said, Sinead, uh, that, that's gone. Party membership is like it's not quite non-existent but it, it's 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 extremely low it's no less than half a percent i think uh, in ireland um there are some very enthusiastic branches on the university campuses but beyond that i mean you could meet in someone's house quite comfortably uh, whereas before you'd have to book big halls in you know termin fecken or cork city or whatever um so i i think that the, all these things have fed into the changing nature of our politics when you listen to people doing constituency guides, you might you know hear some of them on the radio, and it's always about you know they will discuss how a candidate was picked because he or she is from a certain area, and you know geography is key, um, and that feeds into our you know into our electoral system, and you know I was it's quite interesting. I mean when you look at what's going on now at the moment, uh, you know the Fine Gael vote is you know is subsiding. And that makes it very difficult for some constituencies that may be running two candidates they thought were safe or at least fairly safe. And we saw in, you know, an instance of this in um, breakout this week. Uh, there was a story in the Irish Times by Phil Kelly that you know, war had broken out in Mead because they have two sitting TDs and ministers there. They have Regina Doherty and they have Helen McEntee. And normally when, you know, when the when the vote is called when the vote is called the constituency is carved up so somebody gets one area and somebody gets the other area and you leaflet and you poster there and you seek your number one and number two for your running mate but it's literally it's like the dmz you don't cross it you just do not go there and next of course once the vote starts to collapse then it's you know every man and woman for themselves discipline breaks down you know incursions happen and then there's like skin and hair flying um, and so it's always, if, if you see that in your area, you know that the, if there's a two-candidate strategy, that it's in trouble. It's always a great way of knowing how your candidates are going in an area. And, you know, geography is absolutely everything. I mean, we've seen what's happening down in Kerry, you know. 
the hilarious map that the uh, the two Healy Ray brothers, you know, put a very out. effective map, Tony. I'm, I'm sure, but yeah. you know, I just love the whole notion yeah. of it. You know, they just sort of divide yeah. the entire constituency, yeah. and that's Michael Healy Ray's area, and that's Danny Healy Ray, and then the lucky souls who live in Kilgarvan actually get to vote for whichever Healy Ray. Which is like. a change. <laughs> they've changed that from 2016. That's the added extra. Obviously, Danny wanted a bit more territory this time round. Yeah. Well, it actually works very well because, like. It, they know Killarney, Danny Healy Ray is the only local councillor contesting it, or the only person. From the, so they know if they leave Killarney to him, he's going to get X thousand votes. And I know he's at 4% in the opinion poll there a few nights back, but I put a few bob in them after that, I'll be honest. <laughs> uh, and then to give the rest. Yep. To, but what's funny is the colours as well, green and gold. So immediately you're playing into the mentality as well. But it's very clever. It's what political parties used to do well in the old days. But as Gary suggested, I think political parties are using the old, losing the old ways. And sometimes, even in Dublin Midwest, Paul Gorty and Francis Timmons is doing something similar. It seems as if the independents are now kind of using the old style of politics. The Healy Rays are the classic examples. We had Claire Daly as well using, and Barry Martin using a similar a strategy in Dublin Fingal in 2016. It's 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 interesting. You had a huge row between um, Dar O'Brien and uh, Lorraine Clifford Lee in, uh, in yes, Fingal yes. the last time. And if you look at Catherine Noon's you know troubles um, last week uh, and Richard Bruton on uh, on the um, the Tonight <laughs> Show uh, when he was asked was he. Uh, was that that strategy gone? He was kind of fumbling and he didn't really answer the question. Um, but they have a strategy for, for ones and twos in Dublin Bay North. So it's a uh, it's not just a rural Ireland thing. Mm. Well, the famous one, of course, was Bertie Hearn. I mean, Bertie Hearn, and like, Cyprian and, and oh, C oh, Cyprian. I mean, that's just the best ever. Yeah. I mean, that was just, you know, I mean, Bertie Hearn. Tell us what happened. Well, Bertie Hearn literally ran his constituency, Dublin Central, like a ward boss. I mean, he he literally, I mean, as Gary was saying, area and, and Adrian, like, they would know every house and every street and they'd know everything that went on and everything would be canvassed and they had the whole thing sewn up. And Bertie, I mean, he was actually fanatical about getting, topping the poll. I mean, he, this was a huge thing with him. I mean, it was, you know, he, there was, I think in the 2007 election, he was addressing, in the middle of the election, he was addressing, he addressed the house, the joint houses of parliament. This was a huge deal. I mean, this was a sitting Taoiseach addressing the house of parliament in Westminster. And... They were showing shots of it on the, on the six o'clock news and people in Drumcondra were watching him on the news and Vexing's a knock on the door and there was Bertie standing there going, I, I can have your vote, missus. You know, because he literally just zipped back on the plane because he was so terrified. But he had a running mate, uh, his, his, you know, his sort of sidekick, Cyprian uh, Brady. This was uh, 2002, wasn't it? 2007. 2007, excuse and me, Mary 2007. And Mary Fitzpatrick. Yeah, yeah. But, well, it was two, of the, the, yes. course, the two, the famous one was, uh, Cyprian Brady managed to get elected on a first count, or when his first count was 987 votes. Oh, very good. He got, am I right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Round of applause for Lise. Oh, my God. Thank you. It was the most extraordinary, um, you know, fate of, or slate of hand, because Bertie's first, uh, you know, his, his quota was so enormous that they managed to bring in, uh, he managed to bring in Cyprian, but there was also all kinds of sharp practices at, at play because Mary Fitzpatrick was technically number two in the area and she was expected to take, to take the seat, come in with, with, with Bertie. But 
the you know the boys in the ward weren't mad about Mary. So, just the night before the uh, the election vote, um, a whole slew of leaflets went out all over the place and said vote Ahern one and Brady two. In this area. In this area. So they absolutely contravened all the red lines, broke all the, the rules, with the result that Cyprian benefited and. Poor old Mary didn't. And there was war over that, wasn't there, afterwards? Well, it was the, in this area, it was the clever thing, because you were kind of suggesting, oh, we're not telling everyone. It's just, we're just doing a constituency. So you can presume somewhere else in the constituency we're saying, number one, Mary, number two, Bertie. So it's, it was almost, I think that was the, the really devious part of it. Yeah, because he leafleted practically the whole constituency yeah. <laughs> to say in this area. Uh, but it, but that, that brings us to the idea of, of a surplus. So the idea, you know, you get, if, if the quote is 10,000 and you get 15,000, there are 5,000 transfers, uh, which is what happened. Uh, now, they're not the exact yeah. figures, obviously. Uh, Adrian probably has them. Um, but there is a risk for parties uh, mm. with surpluses and with running mates um, you know, I, I say to myself, why isn't Mary Lou Macdonald running a, a running mate in Dublin Centre where we expect her to get a huge, uh, a huge first preference vote and she might have all these thousands of transfers uh, going around. This is before the, the, the surge. Um, but if you if the quote if the quote is ten thousand and you get ten thousand and one, well all your transfers are pointless. They don't they don't count, uh, because you only have one one vote surplus. Uh, which is a sort of quirk in, in PR. But yeah, but Bertie was a master at, at figuring out where uh, and not just in his own constituency, but across the uh, across the country um, and one of the reasons they were successful in 2007 was because they got, they got their candidate numbers uh, right they ran about the right number of candidates they didn't have too many uh, which was an awful problem for Fianna Fáil before and they didn't have too few which is Sinn Féin's problem today if everything is as local as we've just been hearing, and I think I was canvassed at a funeral last night um, and told that the person who was canvassing me would get things done. So, you know, there was proof in it even last night for myself that it is so local. Why did 658,000 of us watch the debate on RT last night for two hours? Because you vote for your local candidate out of the party you like the most. Well, probably because it's, yeah. you know, it, it's sort of nobody's, you know, everybody's still skint after Christmas. It's a winter election. Everybody was at home. That's <laughs> <laughs> probably as much to do with it. But, you know, again, it was sort of goes back to what I'm saying is the, you know, we do like our drama around elections. You know, we do get involved. We do engage. And I've over the last few days, a lot of the radio stations have been sort of doing things with schools and, you know, the primary schools, the secondary schools, maybe just sort of running debates or, you know, discussions. And, you know, even the, I'm always heartened to the level of engagement you even get among the young. You know, they hear it at home. They hear the conversations. You know, postering plays a role. You know, our, our election is very visible as well, you know, because we have faces on, you know, on lampposts. And, you know, it, it's so, you know, when, it, you know, when you get, you know, a, a big set piece debate, you know, people do genuinely tune in. Now, I think last night was, was, was special because people wanted to see the cut of Mary Lou's jib, you know, because there's obviously a huge amount of floating voters still out there. Uh, still a large tranche of undecided. So, you know, it would be a bit like a march. You know, you go and you go in and you have a look at the craters going around in the ring, you know, and just say, I might, I'd like to look at that one, you know, so. No, I am going to throw a slightly discordant note into the uh, into the debate <gasps> uh, by disagreeing slightly with my esteemed colleague, uh, Dr. Kavanagh, because I don't think uh, the local issue is as important now as it once was. Um, and I think that's why you saw 700,000, they said, and another 200 stayed on to watch the, the spin room afterwards, uh, so-called. Um, I think attachment, as I said, has, has collapsed. And the local issue is, n is not, in my view, as important as it, uh, as it once was, where you would vote for the candidate from 
uh, Evergreen, which is where I'm from, and the south of Stoke Gary, City. You look at the tallies, and still local candidates are doing really well in the local. Like we no, have I, local I, I, elections I, there in Leash in the last last year, and one candidate got eighty percent in their home area. So it's still there. No, I know. I, 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 I get what you're saying, but. It, the local factor is still no. I don't. I, do, I don't deny that the local factor is there at all. Uh, but if you look at somewhere like Dublin West, Leo is from Castlenock. Uh, Jack Chambers is from uh, Castlenock. Uh, Roger O'Gorman is from literally around the corner in in Blanchardstone. I mean, they're all local, uh, and they're all from relatively same area. In what is a what is a small constituency geographically uh, speaking, and on the other side of the constituency, uh, Ruth Coppinger, uh, Paul Donnelly are from the sort of Mulhodert Ongar uh, part of that constituency. I'm happy to talk about it because that's where I live. Um, but it's um, so yeah. So when you have a small area with local candidates, then you start fighting. Um, so I, I I just I'm I'm not skeptical about it, but uh, I think it's not as strong as it once was. Well, I think that could be also because um, local issues are actually all on a national level, if you know what I mean. I mean, there's, there's a, you know, there are central themes. I mean, homelessness, housing, rental, hospital waiting lists. Why, they are both local and national, you know, and I think that's, again, why there is so much engagement as well, because, you know, every house, every community has somebody probably on a hospital waiting list or knows somebody who's desperate, or, you know, to trying to rent somewhere or get on the property market. So I think in this, you know, I, you know, going around with some of the leaders or, you know, you know, to various constituencies, you do find those themes coming up and up again. They may have a local angle to them. It might be about the local hospital or it might be, you know, about, say, you know, a local, you know, plan commission for, a, you know, a local block or something. But these are the themes, you know, that, you know, that are engaging people and they are in every single one of the 38, 39 constituencies. Is this why the Healy Rays haven't lost an election, which we have an explainer on, by the way, um, how the Healy Rays have never, ever lost an election, um, that they have that kind of cult of personality plus they're the perfect parish pump politicians? Their former Fianna Fallers, really. I mean, their father yeah. became famous when he uh, was not added, not not put on the ticket in uh, in 1997. And what happened then was he won his seat as an independent and became a very important independent because the Fianna Fáil PD government was reliant on his vote and, and three other independents. Uh, there was a big surge in independence in 2002. Uh, I think it went from 5 to 11. Uh, the reason being that... Uh, Many people said, oh, yeah, I'd vote for my local independent candidate and then he, he or she would be able to make a difference and get me a hospital in wherever. And, of course, what happened then was Fianna Fáil and the PDs got a majority, a uh, coalition majority, and all these independents were, were redundant, basically, on the, uh, on the back benches. And it, it collapsed in 2007. Now, it went up again because of the fragmentation of the party system. Uh, so, yeah... That's how I feel about independence. <laughs> but well, it's, it's trying to explain, uh, trying to explain why why some independents uh, work uh, and and some uh, and some don't. And of course, some people are independents and then they join parties and then they join other parties also. And I listened with amazement uh, last Friday week uh, to Morning Ireland, where Michael Harty, the the independent from Clare, was bemoaning his terrible lot uh, because he was a medical doctor, he had tremendous expertise, uh, but when he went to the doll, no one took any notice of him, and he was like bemoaning his fate. But of course, he had a chance to go into government as well, and he didn't. He, he couldn't negotiate the way uh, the um, 
the trio of Ross, uh, Halligan and, uh, and McGrath for all their sort of uh, foibles and whatever. I, I tend to admire independents who, uh, who do take the decision to go into, uh, into government. And, uh, but I can see why Harty and Fitzmaurice stayed out. Uh, but I don't have any sympathy for someone who says, oh, I can't do anything as a backbencher if you have the chance uh, to go into government. But you, the other independent, Kevin the Boxer Moran, I think there's some... Oh, yeah, I forgot about him, sorry. This yeah. is my sort of urban bias that I have. <laughs> I'm Midland, so I'm Midland's bias. Well, I think there's someone who really used his ministerial position. Like, he becomes Minister of Flooding. Where is he from? Athlone, Flooding. Uh, he's involved in tourism. Suddenly you get this new tourist area called Ireland's Hidden Heartlands. I'm from Leech, I'm going brilliant. It's all the Midlands. No, it's not. It's all around that loan. <laughs> <laughs> I remember ranting on Joe Duffy about it one day. Still mad, still mad. Uh, bringing up Boxer Morn brings up something kind of just a total aside. The Boxer, the B. Is that a ballot paper, Adrian, this might be one for you. Is, is, that, is that story correct, that people add the middle name so they're higher up in the, the ballot paper? Oh, yeah. I, Gary will know this more than me. Uh, You're saying this, but I don't think this is true. <laughs> uh, research was done by Neil Collins, Theresa Reedy, and Fiona Buckley on this, which proves the higher up the ballot paper you are, the better your chances of being elected. It kind of goes against the Eurovision rule. Usually Eurovision, the later you're on, the better your chances of winning. Uh, but in ballot papers, the higher up. So if you look at Eamon O'Queeve, I think he became Eamon Queeve. No, uh, no he, he argued that the O... Uh, it wasn't O apostrophe, it was, uh, it was O something, but that, really the O didn't count. And that yeah. Queeve was what counted, and so that would have him high up the ballot. Yeah, what tree, a legend. Theresa and, and our people, yeah, did a lot of work yeah. on that. Uh, that probably explains why there's so many Aherns in Irish politics then, you know. Yeah, true. It's also a Mayo theory of why Mayo think that they lose the All-Ireland final, because they don't get the dressing room, because Balliolithia gets the first dressing room, which seemingly is the nicer dressing room in Co Park. So there's my non-political fact for you. Um, posters and debates. Um, if we got rid of both of them, would people vote? Would people, what would happen if we just decided debates we're going to do away with, it's wasted for television time, posters, they're terrible for the environment? Posters are probably terrible for the environment, but... I know I'm a majority person here, I should be pro-environment, but I think, to be honest, you need some posters because we talk about, we're in the bubble here, we talk, well, there's an election on, we're interested, everyone knows there's an election on. I know in Leash at the moment, part of Leash, including where I live, has been hived off into bloody Kildare South. And like, if you're in that part of Leash... That's for the bloody Kildare. Sorry, <laughs> wonderful Kildare South. Uh, if you're in that part of Leash, there's no way you're going to know you're, you've been moved unless you see these posters. At least if you see the posters, you'll go, Fiona Lachlan, who the hell is she? Where's Barry Cowan? And then suddenly it might click. So they do two things. They inform you as to who your candidates are, but they also remind you there's an election on. They do, I think, help with turnout. Uh, I remember when I was a lot younger, when I was doing my PhD, uh, the one area I was particularly focused, one of the areas I focused on at that time was North Lundalkin in the early 2000s. And one of the stories about North Lundalk, and uh, Kitty Holland did a piece on it, I think she's doing an update probably tomorrow or the next day. The one story they wrote about North Lundalk in 2002 was the striking th thing was there was no posters around North Lundalk. Now, I think there's a lot more posters around. I think back in that election, I that was 2002, there's a lot more posters around Lundalk now and turnouts up 20%. Partly, I suggest, because the Sinn Féin 
team has got stronger there as well as people before profit. But I do think they're not, I think we need to do something about limiting them, all right? But unless you can get a better option, I think they still have a, and I, this thing about tidy towns, uh, my take on the tidy towns is, hang on a second, aren't there big flashing lumps of plastic around these towns between November and January every year, usually bought by tidy towns, which are probably using a lot more electricity. For me, election posters, they're our Christmas lights. <laughs> and to be honest. But they, they actually also be, can make a difference. I mean, yeah. if you think of Michael McDool's, the, the McDool maneuver, um, when the uh, PDs were fighting for their, their political life. Um, they, were, they weren't in great shape. Um, they were, looked like they were set to lose any seats. This was 2002. And God, I'm firing on all cylinders yeah. on the dates tonight. Um, and Mac, Michael, McDo and Michael McDool decided that the best way to actually try and claw back seats was to run a poster campaign saying Sing single party government, no thanks, which put the f was designed to put the frighteners on people to say, you know, if you know, if you all go in en masse and vote for Fianna Fáil, you know, they could get in as a single party government and we've kind of got used to coalitions and it's not a great idea to let those lads, you know, on the levers of power without, you know, a, a responsible smaller party to keep them in check. And it actually worked. It, it worked. Um, they, PDs were on the floor, they were looking at maybe, you know, going down to two or three seats and they came back with, I think it was eight, maybe ten. That's right. Eight. eight. Gosh, yeah. So, yeah, you know. They went from it, four to eight. Wasn't that's that right, yeah. So, um, you know, so because people took that message on board and they actually voted accordingly. Now, of course, the, he tried the same manoeuvre in the, the next election in 2007, which led to the rumble at Ranala, which I'm sure maybe, I don't know whether some of you heard about. It was one of the great bits of circus uh, on a general election campaign. Um, Michael McDougall was back up in the triangle in Ranla, trying the same, the same thing, except it was left-wing government, no thanks, this time. And he was railing against Labour and the Greens and so on. And um, he, so he was up the, up the sort of pole, and up there, putting up his posters. Down in Leinster House, John Gormley got wind that was, this was going on, hopped into a cab with a couple of his, of his, of his, of his pals, flew up there, and there, you see it on YouTube, the most hilarious confrontation took place. And the two lads, you know, you've got MacDool there going, you know, I calm down there now, you're, you're, you're losing the plot. And uh, um, Gormley kind of waving the leaflet, the PD leaflet in his face saying, you, you know, you're telling lies that we're going to increase, you know, corporation tax. And, and it is absolutely, it's, it's kind of passed into legend as just one of those great bits of theater. But again, it shows like the passion of two men because they were also, absolute bitter rivals in that constituency as well. And I mean, the vote actually passed between the two of them more than once. And, but you know, again, sort of encapsulated the, the sort of the passion and the madness of a campaign trail. But the poster, the single party uh, poster, absolutely paid dividends for, the, for, for them. In an age of social media though, are they as necessary, Gary? Um, I think they are, and I, I can't really explain it any better than, than Adrian and Lise did, so I won't try. But there's also a, there's a generational thing as well going on here. Um, not everybody has access to the internet, uh, and there is, I think, an age demographic uh, there. Uh, my mother lives in the, uh, the inner city in Cork. Uh, notwithstanding my protestations that I would buy it for her, um, she refuses to have it and uh, thinks her life is much better. Um, she will vote, uh, certainly on Saturday. Uh, but um, she wouldn't know there was an election on. Well, she might see me the adult time pontificating. Uh, 
But uh, beyond that, um, yeah, I, I, I'm a firm believer in posters for, for that reason. Um, but yes, you're quite right. Social media is also has kind of transformed uh, campaigning as, as well. Uh, there's not that many people knocking on doors. There's some, uh, but there's not mm. huge amounts. But there's extraordinary, you know this better than we would, Sinead, extraordinary amount of advertising uh, online, Facebook, and Twitter, I don't quite understand the others, uh, Instagram or TikTok or whatever. Um, but it, but it, there's a lot of it going on, and that actually, there's an important point here, which is that helps name recognition amongst a different cohort of voters, uh, voters who, who, you know, who read a journal and, uh, and get their news from, from Twitter and whatever. So I think it's, uh, uh, it's a mix, but certainly uh, the social media spend and the importance of social media, pretty much everyone has a Twitter account who's running uh, for office is, uh, is important because, again, and, and the other generation, my, my daughter is voting for the first time, she gets all her news from, you know, from the journal and joe.ie and, and online. And, um, yeah, so I think there is a generational thing going on. And is there any way to journal that he could get Danny Healy Ray a TikTok account? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Michael Healy Ray is a top um, engaged, he has top engagement on Instagram yeah. uh, at the moment, uh, which is again interesting yeah. how quickly uh, the independents have cottoned on, <laughs> on to that. Oh, it's um, funny, Danny doesn't seem to have any presence whatsoever. It's almost as if one Healy Ray is doing the social media, the other Healy Ray isn't. It's almost as if they're playing both sides of the fence in a way. Maybe they've also yeah. uh, divvied up yeah. generations. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I think Adrian's yeah. onto something as well, because I, I actually on social media, somebody had posted a wee video of Danny had called to a house and the, the kid was having a birthday party. And there's a little video of Danny came in, played a, a song on the accordion and then slipped him out a couple of like brick quid to go and buy himself some sweets. So, you know, you've got that old fashioned style and then you've got, you know, Michael Jing memes and, you know, kind of really work on the, the, you know, really work on social media, so, yeah. Because yeah, one of the things that has come up is how, like, the, the manifestos were quite late uh, this election. Um, are they important to voters? I know we go on about them and, you know, we dissect them, we fact check them, we look at, we compare them, we contrast them. To the ordinary person on the street who has seen the posters, who maybe has been targeted by an ad or two on social media, um, how important are manifestos these days? Um, not Sorry, I'm distracted by two people who are waving at us from behind, so <laughs> apologies for that. Uh, maybe, maybe they're reading the manifesto. And, uh, <laughs> manifestos date, date to 1977. The first use of the term manifesto in, uh, in modern Irish politics was uh, Fianna Fáil's famous manifesto of 1977, written by Martin O'Donoghue, who was professor of economics at Trinity, and said, you know... He, there was a huge increase in the number of eligible voters in that election. It went, uh, I think there was like something like 400,000 new voters out of an electorate of 2.8 million. So a huge amount. And he thought that Manifesto had a sort of ring of Che Guevara about it. Who wouldn't want to uh, get excited by that? And that's the great giveaway uh, manifesto, the abolition of car tax, the abolition of rates, um, just being two of its more noticeable uh, elements. First of all, I think the journal is doing great work in its fact-checking. It's very important, uh, I want to say that. Uh, but does your average man in the street or woman on the street read manifestos? Well, I mean, if they did, I would, I, you know, I'd counsel you against it uh, from now on. Yeah, they're terribly dull, they're terribly boring. Uh, was it you told me at least that Fianna Gaiman is very text-heavy, whereas Fianna Fáil is a much more picture, uh, which goes, which shows that uh, <coughs> I, um, 
I haven't studied him too carefully myself, uh, but I did read the Sinn Féin one, but only because I had heard that it was this, you know, Corbynist uh, uh, tax and spend, and there are a lot of tax uh, proposals in it, but they have a big sheet at the back to say all this is costed by the um, uh, by the Department of Finance. Now, that's a different story in and of itself. So, no, I don't think manifestos play much of a role in deciding how how ordinary voters like us decide how we are going to vote. No, I mean, you find most of them propping up the legs, wonky tables in the press gallery in Leinster House after the first while, you know, I mean, the, you know, the... The one question, I mean, when you're out, I mean, I, you know, over various elections, I'd be out, you know, walking behind party leaders and, um, and time and again, you know, when he stopped, uh, occasionally she, but usually he, unfortunately, um, you hear the one question is, you know, what are you going to do for me or what are you going to do for the area? And really, like, the manifesto really boils down to that. If anybody does look at a manifesto, it's specifically maybe to look at, you know, what's going to happen in, to tax bans or, you know, what is going to happen in terms of, you know, funding education or, you know, it, they, you know, they might actually look at it online. But, um, but really, people just want to know, you know, they could dress it up, you know, how, how in any way they like, but people really want to know what's in it for them. I mean, it is the, the universal question. Um, you know, when you're out in the doors, it's interesting. And again, I think it's, it's because of the, the, the local nature of, of our politics. I don't think I've ever, now in the general election, obviously, you know, referendums are different beasts altogether. I don't think I've ever heard a, a member of the public stop um, a politician and say, you know, um, how are you going to vote on this piece of legislation if it comes up in the next all? You know, I mean, technically they're there as legislators, but there's a perception that their first and foremost duty is not as national legislators, uh, but to look after the local communities. Now, you know, again, that would be because a lot of the, the particularly rural communities maybe feel that they haven't got a fair shake of, of the pot, that everything is very Dublin-centric. Um, but I think it is a perception of how, of how our TDs are, how we vote for the TDs. It's really what they can do for the area. Uh, you know, and this is why you have local TDs been asked about potholes and so on like that. You know, and a lot of them will spend a lot more time down in their constituencies than they will possibly up in Dublin, and this is why it led to Fobgate and Votegate and all that, whatever gate you have in yourself, you know, because they, so many TDs, particularly those ones under pressure, feel they have to spend more time in, the, in, in down in the constituency than they do in Leinster House. We are going to go to Kev Cunningham, our TU Dublin uh, lecturer here in a few minutes. He is um, counting up our PRS TV votes that you uh, made for our next Taoiseach. Um, if anyone has ballots that they haven't uh, given up yet, if you want to just pop them up, if you just pass them up through, uh, just to complicate matters for Kev. Um, and I, we have a couple more questions. We're just going to get into the mechanics of voting um, with the guys here as well while Kev gets those last ones in. Thanks, Kev. <laughs> um, on the, me the mechanics of, of voting, we talked about voting down the ballot. So everybody who just got their ballot papers there... Voted down the, right down the ballot, I'm sure. Why? Why should they have voted down Because the every preference. Irish elections are so close that literally, in a 19-candidate constituency like Wicklow this time or Stigo Leitrim, Theoretically, and it's not impossible that an 18 preference could decide who wins or loses the last seat. So preferences matter because Irish elections are so close. Just to put it into context, the closest general election contest in my living memory is Limerick West in 2002. 
Uh, just one vote in the end separated Dan Neville and Michael Finucane. Dan Neville went on to spend the next 10 years in the Dáil. Michael Finucane had some good times in the County Council. Uh, What's uh, his pension like? <laughs> Leash, uh, Boris in Austria in 1999. The last two candidates, Sean Bonham of Fine Gael, Larry Kavanagh of Labour, finished exactly level on votes. And ultimately, that had to be decided on which candidate had the most first preference votes, and that was John Bonham. And there was a big court case after it, which was brilliant, because it's a great, uh, the, local, the returning officer wrote a book on it. So it's a great book to read if you want to understand in nitty gritty detail how PRSTV works. What's a spiral vote? What's not a spiral vote? Uh, so I would always vote down the line myself. What if there's someone on your ballot paper that you really don't want any any anywhere next nor near give them the 19 preference in no not at all no we usually don't like debates on the explainer but we i'll might, take this one go gary some discordance uh, amongst uh, amongst us i i am of the view as are some other people uh, i think adrian's view is, is the the accepted majority view i have a different view if you don't want any candidate uh, to get elected or you don't want your vote to give them any type of preference at all just don't vote for them um, no, you have to be rational about this. If there are uh, five seats in your constituency, uh, you might as well try and fill the five seats. Uh, you know, so at least vote one to five. Um, and I'm of the view that uh, if you are really anti a person or anti their party, uh, you know, they cannot pick up any type of vote. So let's say there are two people from the same party, like who do you give 18 to and who do you give 19 to them? My view is just don't bother voting for them uh, and leave, uh, leave the votes fall as they may. Like Adrian's examples are, as usual, they're, they're, they're tremendous, uh, they're exciting and they're correct, uh, but they're rare enough, really. Dick Spring, do you remember when he lost by four votes? Or was he, he won by four, four, by four yeah, votes? Yeah. Uh, it's a, in many ways, it's a great collapse of the Labour Party, they're not even running a candidate in Kerry. Uh, no, but, but my view is that if you're not... Uh, I think, yes, the don't. one vote doesn't happen, but you can have elections where less than 100 votes could sort out. Yeah. If you, I remember 2002, you had maybe about seven or eight constituencies where I think it was less than 100 votes decided at the last. Mm -hmm. So it, it is close, it is more, there is a good chance your lower preferences could matter. So no, I, no, I, I, let's face it, you only vote for general elections every four or five years. Well, Enjoy no, I, the day, I, I, use all your preferences. I take, sorry, I, I, I take that point, but there is, there is an, I think there's an important explainer to go to the heart of what we're doing tonight to say some people are under the apprehension that all their votes will be counted, all their transfers down. That is not the case. So to give the example I, I gave earlier, if your candidate is elected on the first count with a surplus, uh, there is no guarantee that your vote will be the surplus vote. So let's say the quota is 10,000, you get 15,000, they must pick 5,000 to transfer. Uh, that's it at, at its simplest. And, uh, and how do they choose that 5,000? Uh, randomly. Mm. Usually it's I like the third sequel of Fatima. It's a bit of a mystery. Yeah. This is one of the great yeah. ideas about electronic yeah. voting, when, which they tried in... Uh, yeah. That was my next question. Thank you, Gary. Well, Go. No, they, they tried electronic voting in 2002. Why are you for even mentioning it? And it was, it was brutal in its... In, in its There's no bloody uh, tallies there, Gary. Well, I mean, that, yeah, but that's, that's a famous story about... I mean, it's... Yeah, yeah. it's Well, that was... They decided, the government in their the infinite wisdom that they'd invest in e-voting e e machines and seven and a half thousand of them were duly bought. 
And they decided to give them a trial run um, in three different constituencies. Uh, I think it was Dublin West, Dublin North, and um, Meath. Um, and so the, there's a famous scene where in Dublin North, where um, all the candidates were, were lined up to, to get the results. Now, you see, the great thing about the, the, the normal process with the, with the Pian Louis is that you get counts and you have tally men and women, which are just one of the best sights. I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dark art. It's wonderful to see tally men and women at work in the count centre. It's center. the most beautiful thing it's, in the world. It really is genuine. <laughs> well, OK, I wouldn't go that far. So, but the, the electronic voting, of course, was different. Um, so all the candidates were lined up. Um, and among them was Nora Owen, who was a former um, justice minister, and uh, Fine Gael, and uh, you know, huge political pedigree. She was expected to be returned uh, fairly handily. One of her colleagues standing on the stage had looked over the returning officer's um, notes and said, oh, look, I can see your name on it, you're in. And then they called the vote, uh, they called the result, and she went from thinking she was elected with absolutely no prior warning to being not elected. And all the cameras were there because it was such a, you know, a momentous occasion and they caught her, her distress. And, you know, there was a famous shot of Labour's, I think it was, wasn't it Labour's, Sean, uh, Sean Ryan? Sean Ryan kind of, you know, consoling her because she was just like so upset. Um, so everybody decided that this wasn't a great idea. Uh, then basically questions arose about the safety of these and Joe Higgins actually very, very sort of, you know, looked into his crystal ball and said, you know, these could be hacked, you know, or these, you know, could be insecure. Um, Bertie Ahern was furious about this and, you know, railed against having to go back to the Alpian Louis. But, you know, the government saw, and then a few German hackers or Dutch hackers, I think, actually basically said, no, the software is a bit iffy on this. Cut a long story short, um, John Gormley was the environment minister. I think in 2009, he went, look, we're done with that. Thanks very much. We're grand. They were finally <coughs> scrapped in, I think it was 2012 or 2013, <coughs> having been stored for years. And it cost the taxpayer about, I think, almost 70 million. Uh, absolutely waste of money. And they were eventually sold for scrap for 70,000 euro to some scrap merchants. And they've never been mentioned again. I think John Paul Phelan raised the spectre of it recently, and he was shot down like a paper plane. I mean, no one was having a bar of this. So I think we are, you know, stuck with the great, the great Pierre Louis. Yes. <laughs> and so that's a good time to go to Kev with his his Pierre Louis. Yeah. Are we ready? Yeah. We won't we won't do the result yet because Kev, as I said, is a TU Dublin professor, but he is also a pollster, and you'll find him um, with Ireland Thinks. I'm just going to grab a microphone for him. Um, so we wanted Kev to ask a couple of questions because the polls over the last three weeks have been absolutely brilliant for newsmakers. Um, oh, but how how accurate? Are polls in Ireland generally like? Should we be looking at the ones that have just come out this week that have Sinn Fein as you know the the, the party that'll come out on top? Can we believe them? Uh, yeah, a bit, you know. Uh, so I would say, on average, right, opinion polls, um, they do tend to, on average throughout the world, that is like uh, all opinion polls in every election going back in time and time. On average, they're out by two percent. Okay, that's not the margin of error. Usually you hear this margin of error thing, but uh, that's kind of saying, okay, it's going to be within 3%, usually is what you hear in a poll. 
But on average, them being out by 2% means that 50% of the time they're within 2% and 50% of the time they're outside. So the margin of error on these polls is, is usually 4 or 5% effectively because you're not really talking about you know, normal scientific things. You're talking about people responding to opinion polls and that sort of stuff. So it's slightly different. Um, in terms of Sinn Féin, the big thing, right? So the funny thing is because Sinn Féin have underperformed in every opinion poll. I guess most people's reactions are sort of like, well, it'll probably happen again, you know? But that kind of um, might not necessarily count for the fact that the, the pollsters themselves are well aware of this and are looking at their polls, trying to figure out and make sure that they don't do the, do the wrong thing again, you know, and underestimate Sinn Féin. So that's very, very important. And, you know, when you, when you do an opinion poll, you kind of, you account for how people voted in the last election. So in any poll, there will be, you know, 30, so if 13% of people voted for Sinn Féin in the last election, their poll will have 13% of people who voted for Sinn Féin in the previous election. So yeah, they're definitely working hard to, uh, to make sure there's the right number of Sinn Féin voters. The only thing I would say on top of this is turnout is so important in elections. So, Often, um, like I used the, the Shannad referendum. I don't know if people remember the, the referendum where uh, we were going to abolish the Shannad and uh, there wasn't a single poll that was within 10% of, so the, the, the closest poll to the result was one that said uh, it was gonna be a 60% yes vote. And it turned out that we didn't abolish the Shannad, I guess. Um, but I think some of this is basically about who actually wants it more. So if you go to the uh, recent referendum on repealing the Eighth Amendment, you could see the turnout was massively different uh, among younger women in particular. It doubled uh, according to some estimates, uh, whereas young men didn't really turn out to the same extent because perhaps for young women, this was very much more important for them, you know, this was a much bigger deal. Um, so I think a lot of this, and for the Shannad thing, my explanation there is people who wanted to save the Shannad were obviously people who liked the Shannad, you know, and now were actually engaged by this thing. So I think there is this kind of turnout thing. So the question for me is, are the Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin voters people who are undecided, but come an election, they wanted to save Sinn Féin because it's the obvious choice among a disaffected voter who may not turn out? Or is there a momentum and a surge and a demand for, okay, this is maybe our time for change? Because in the Scottish independence referendum, there was that sense of it was a time for change and lots and the turnout in that particular election was big. And, and that meant that the, uh, the, the referendum result was very similar to, that was a very long answer. That was a great answer. How much can polls influence what actually happens next? So if, the, if you are seeing a surge, can that then influence a greater surge? Oh, the, the bandwagon effect. Yeah, I, so that seems to happen a lot more in um, contests for which people aren't as, um, don't have these, the guys were talking about like identities that, that people normally have, like loyalties to parties and that sort of stuff. Like people, historically speaking, would be very loyal to Fianna Fáil. That does tend to happen in say like, the you, you often see it in the primaries in America, right? Where new candidates come along, new leadership candidates, and, and people just jump on the bandwagon of any, so recently obviously Pete Buttigieg is going up and different candidates are going down. I think this bandwagon effect is primarily occurs where there isn't this long-term loyalty. Like people haven't been Pete Buttigieg fans for years and you know, their parents always voted for Pete, you know, that sort of stuff. 
So I think uh, the bandwagon effect can happen, but it's limited in a in a partisan electoral contest. And there is partisanship. I think one of the interesting things is party loyalty is declining, as people are saying. But actually, in the in the recent uh, election, twenty sixteen. The, there were loyalists. There were people who suddenly identified with the political party. There was a little bit of an increasing, but it was Sinn Féin voters. So there's more party loyalty with people who vote for Sinn Féin. So I thought that was quite, and particularly young, among young uh, people. So that's kind of uh, another aspect to this. Like, so they may have now, Sinn Féin may now become very established. You know, it may not be just a flash in the pan that Sinn Féin now have this solid block now of, of voters that, that, that won't go away. Polls kind of took a hit in the US and, and the UK um, over the last maybe five or six years, but reputationally in Ireland, they've kind of stayed steady. Is there any reason that we've had that kind of accuracy in Ireland? Um, I sometimes think the reputation thing is because, um, so like when an, when an election's close, right, you know, like the American elections were, effectively, if you look at the numbers, you know, it, it's, it's 48-52 or whatever, that's a pretty close contest, you know. Um, opinion polls can get you within, as I said, about 5%. And so when you get on the wrong side of that very marginal close context, contest, then I think people really scrutinise polls. You know, the, the recent British election, uh, not, not the recent one, but the, one, the, the 2015 one, I guess, and, and the 2017 one, people were kind of surprised because they were off because they, were in, they ended up being very close. But I think no one really notices when the polls are off by the same amount, but the margin is huge. So no one really were think, was thinking, geez, the, the polls really got it wrong in the marriage referendum, even though they were off by basically the same margin that they've been off in all these other races, you know? So, um, yeah, it's, it's just, I think, about the expectation. And uh, in some cases, even though with all the technology that we have about doing polls, it's very hard to to improve them much more because at the end of the day you're dealing with people and people's minds are you know are, we can't advance their technology that they will tell exactly who they're definitely going to vote for on polling day you know well someone probably can in silicon valley and that's terrifying yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah right are we ready to find again. out who we would elect as taoiseach here oh yeah this okay okay right in so, this room <coughs> okay i'll just go round by round just so Everyone's uh, favorite candidate, candidate gets gets uh, get they know what happened with them. So, in the first round, um, by process of not just how few votes the candidate had, but also because their their name alphabetically was slightly lower. Uh, so in the first round, Padder Tobin was eliminated uh, on one vote. Uh, <laughs> so. Unfortunately for Padre Tobin, of course, his name was slightly lower alphabetically than Michal Martin, who also got eliminated in the next round with, with one vote. Um, interesting, interesting yeah. room, guys. Um, okay, so then uh, Leo Varadkar was eliminated. Uh, it's funny, when you look at the Leo Varadkar votes, he's either got a vote or he was quite far down the, uh, the, the ballot. Um, okay, so he was eliminated on five. So he actually got a few, got a few more votes. Then, uh, as a function of winning an extra transfer, Richard Boyd Barrett uh, was, was eliminated, but also on five, sort of benefiting again from this, this crucial alphabetical order uh, criteria. Um, then after that, uh, it was the combination of Roshan Shortall and Catherine Murphy eliminated on, on seven. And um, then you've got uh, Brendan Howland was eliminated on nine, 
Brendan uh, benefited significantly from the elimination of Leo Varadkar. Um, <laughs> and, then, uh, and then in the final round between Mary Lou and Eamon Ryan, who both started off with eight votes, um, and I guess rather uh, perhaps predictably, maybe not. Uh, it was Eamon Ryan who won by 20 votes to 16 votes in the end. So that was it. Transfer friendly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you very much. And on that note, I think we have to finish up, even though I think we could all stay for another while talking. Uh, thank you so much to Gary, to Lise, to Adrian, to Kevin, especially for working all the way through this, um, to the production team of Nikki Ryan, Aoife Barry, Christine Bohan, everybody else from the journal who helped us put this on tonight. Mostly thank you all for coming. And thank you for everybody who is at home listening to this whenever Nikki gets it out. Um, if you are a fan of The Explainer and want to help us uh, get it to more people, the best thing you can do is leave us a review and rating uh, wherever you listen to your podcasts and share it with your friends. Tell them about all the glorious facts that they, they will learn on it. Um, it would be really, really much appreciated. So thank you very much for coming and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>